You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey everyone, it's Maya Lau here with a favor to ask. Do you have a few minutes to tell me about yourself? We want to know more about you, the listeners, so that we can continue bringing you the shows you want to hear. Take our audience survey by visiting pushkin.fm survey. At the end of it, it'll even give you a code for a free audiobook from Pushkin. That's pushkin.fm survey. I'm committed to supporting my children in that way, but I also recognize there are limits. If the cost of Berkeley is $100,000 a year, you ain't ever going to Berkeley. Like that's not, I mean, but what if they, they get obviously... a scholarship out of the UC yeah. endowment, yeah. which got money from ah. Blackstone? To, to, oh, <laughs> you, you, that's dirty, right? My guest today is Khalid Kadir, who teaches civil and environmental engineering at UC Berkeley. But his resume has almost nothing to do with this interview and is not why I wanted to talk to him. No, this is an episode that is really about the hidden side of Khalid's personal finances, something that even his friends and colleagues might not know about. I met Khalid because he DM'd me on Twitter saying I should consider interviewing a Muslim who avoids riba, which is interest, as in interest that you get charged when you take out a loan. Interest is considered making money off of money, which some Islamic scholars say is forbidden. Some Muslims also don't take out insurance because the insurance industry is based on speculation. I convinced Khalid to tell me all about this side world of personal finance for Muslims and how it's affected his personal life, and I'm so excited to share it with you. I'm Maya Lau, and this is Other People's Pockets, the show where I ask people how much they make and how their finances work so the questions we all have about money can be a little bit less of a mystery. Khalid, welcome to the show. Thank you. Stoked to be here. Where am I reaching you right now? I'm on Berkeley campus. Okay, so in your office? Berkeley. Yep, yep. So I thought that I would read your initial tweet to me, which is how I right. met you. You said, hey there, I hear great things about your podcast, <laughs> as in I have not listened to it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> love it. We love that. Um, <laughs> just a thought. Here's some feedback for it. Right. 
<laughs> Here's what's wrong with it. <laughs> Just a thought, suggestion. You might want to consider having a Muslim on your show, in particular one who takes seriously the rule not to engage in riba or interest. The phenomenon has created an interesting side world of finance, sort of, question mark. There are lots of Muslims who are permanent renters to start. And then there are all sorts of community-based housing cooperatives around the U.S. that are very under the radar. Anyhow, I think it's an interesting and unique challenge to live in the U.S. and live a, quote, normal life and not take or pay interest, not deal in conventional insurance because it's entirely speculative. Most scholars count health insurance as an exception. Happy to chat more about this if it's helpful. And uh, we did chat and it was super fun and it was kind of about like, who could I have on the show who could speak to this? And then I was like, wait, can can I just have you on the show? <laughs> That's like a foot and mouth moment. Like, no, 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 there must be someone better. <laughs> so, all right. Can you identify yourself? Who are you? You know, those questions are complicated identity, right? I'm a child of immigrant parents. I was the first in our family born in the States. Dad is from Pakistan. Mom is from Denmark. I'm Muslim, born and raised Muslim. I lived up and down the East Coast, high school in St. Louis, went to college to study mechanical engineering, and then did my graduate work in environmental engineering. Along the way, started thinking about the sort of politics of international development, which led to, and this is related, I swear, which mm -hmm. led to this like critique of expertise and how experts have solutions to problems that are decontextualized and removed from context and really depoliticized. I learned a lot about that theoretical framework by reading scholars critical of the discipline of economics hmm. and thinking of how economists do that and how they come up with these abstracted solutions and then impose them on the world. And that created this interesting personal and professional intersection for me because I, having grown up Muslim, grew up sort of with the sense that there's some things that don't quite match with a lot of our faith in, in the way the U.S. economic system works. Um, and I would say capitalism as a rule. And this gave me a language in the more academic space to understand how capitalism frames the world and, and takes normal some things that I didn't always accept as normal. And I think that that sort of came together that way. So what do you do now? Not that your job <laughs> is your only identity, but... Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a continuing lecturer at UC Berkeley. I teach in political economy. I teach in the Global Poverty and Practice program and a little bit in engineering. But nowadays, most of my engineering teaching is helping engineers understand the, the politics and the social and political sides of engineering. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that quickly because... Yeah, on your bio page, it's prominent that that one of the things you teach is civil and environmental engineering. So yeah. I don't know if this is a dumb question, but what does civil engineering have to do with politics? <laughs> uh, I think that that's a great question. You're like, well, I uh, teach a whole class on it. So <laughs> this is why I can never get a job anywhere else, because Berkeley like knows me because I've been here. They understand what this weird thing is. That's me. But other places, I'm not legible because they ask that exact same question. What on earth does this have to do? I think the unifying thing is a critique of expertise, critique mm. of a certain kind of technical, quantitative, positivist way of understanding the world that is embedded deep within engineering, also embedded within economics. And mm -hmm. so there are similar things going on the way both types of experts frame and, and manipulate the world. And so that critique of expertise came together, I think, in many ways. Mm. Yeah. So what did money look like in the home where you grew up? Uh, changed over time. Like it wasn't a consistent thing all the time. Uh, when I was born, my dad was a fellow. He's a physician eventually. And as a fellow, he made very little money. So they didn't have much money. I was a baby. I didn't really know, but I know from looking back. And this was in back, Boston? Yep. This is in Boston. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, we moved to Nashville for a year, but then to Baltimore and he was working at Hopkins. He had a good job. He's a radiologist. So we ostensibly must have been middle, middle, upper class at that point in time. We and was your mom home. working? 
Uh, no, she was taking care of us. Yeah. And so, and dad's salary clearly facilitated that. We bought a home uh, with a loan, just like anyone else would, a uh, suburban house. And we sort of lived that way all the way up into high school. We moved a couple times, but lived, you know, middle, upper class and potentially even upper class. I don't know what my dad's actual salary was, but my parents were pretty... I don't know the words old school about money. Like we always bought used cars. Like occasionally we bought a new car, but mostly we bought used cars. My dad fixed them himself. Like that was their orientation towards money. I think the one thing he was willing to spend a little more on was a home. And then when we moved to St. Louis and I went to high school, my dad started his own private practice. And then money got a lot tighter and got a lot trickier. And I know my parents really struggled with money through the end of my dad's career. And now they're retired, but they haven't retired at the level that you would have expected had he been a practicing radiologist in a conventional job. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And you mentioned that they got a home loan, like a normal bank. Yep. Yeah, Talk totally. about that and how does that intersect with what you were telling me about Riba, which maybe could you pause and, and explain yeah. more? What is Riba in Islam? Yeah, Riba is interest. And and there are some who try to reinterpret it as excessive interest. But I think the, the most common understanding is that it is interest and taking interest and dealing in interest. It is written about often in the Quran as something that's just really bad, not allowed. It's something that is it brings all sorts of trouble with it. That it's just sort of a, in my own words, I would say it's like an evil force in a way. It's a thing that that's that doesn't do good. It does more bad. And it's money on money, right? It's that principle. Making money off of money. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And literally making money off of money. Not mm -hmm. like making money because you invest in something and that brings money, but it's literally, I give you a dollar, you give me two back later. And that's because you have to pay the cost of borrowing that money. So riba is a thing that's very clearly outlined in the Quran over and over, not allowed. Also in the prophetic tradition, not allowed to engage in. Then Muslims come to the United States in the Western world where this is very normal and taking an interest-based loan is very normal. And there's been a bit of a bifurcation in the Muslim community. Some who, who are like, no, this isn't allowed. We're not allowed to do it. Others who have taken the opinion that this is the place we live. How else are we going to live here? I think over time, in my view, the arguments for why it is allowed are kind of a race to the bottom. It's sort of like if horrible things are allowed and everybody else is doing a horrible thing, that doesn't mean you do it. And I think that's how it's been normalized in a lot of ways, that this thing that's really bad is very normal here. And if that's the only way to succeed, well, in my view, that means you just don't get to succeed that way. Like you don't get to, to cut that corner like everyone else is cutting that corner. Others disagree. They argue that this is such a, a dominant thing here. And in order to buy a home, most Americans' wealth is wrapped up in their home. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do that, then you don't get to wrap that wealth up. And there's all these tax subsidies and things like that when you take an interest-based loan. So that's it's a thing that many Muslims take the opinion that's okay. And it's an interesting thing. There was a, a traditional scholar from somewhere overseas that was asked this question, you know, we live here, can we do this? And he, he kept pushing back, like, do you have another option? Like, can you do this? Can you do that? And they led him to believe that they were going to be on the street with their family mm. if they didn't take a loan. And he's like, okay, then take the loan. And I think that gets it like, Islam's like not a really rigid religion. It has flexibility. If you were going to end up homeless, for goodness sakes, take an interest-based loan if mm -hmm. that's your only option. But that's not our only option. Yeah. Like, we got a lot of options. So, But your parents did take a traditional loan. Talk about that. Was your dad yeah. conflicted about that or not? I, or? I don't know at the time he first did it. I'm not sure. But I do know later in life he was conflicted about interest-based loans. He doesn't like them. He doesn't want to be uh, close to them if he doesn't have to be. He feels, on one hand, I think he feels very strongly, and I think this is him telling his child, like, hey, go take a loan, build up some security in your life, you know? But on the other hand, I know that he wished it didn't have to be that way. I think that's mm -hmm. the best way to put it for him. But he was still willing to cut that direction with it. And he took that opinion and he's like, look, I'm not a scholar. Scholars have said it's OK. I'm rolling with it. And that's a legitimate stance to take for sure. So. Mm -hmm. So how does your avoidance of riba intersect with your personal religious convictions? Like, is there a spectrum of people who are actually less absolute about their religious convictions, but super strict about riba or vice versa? Like, how does that work for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, 
folks who won't take an interest-based loan tend to be pretty relatively religious folks because that's like a it's a pretty big personal financial hit in the United States, you know, if you're a professional, right? Mm-hmm. And you can afford a loan anyway. So I think that folks who who are making that decision are choosing to try to live by these principles. Now, people are people, you know, I'm I'm a jackass like anyone else. Like I have my own failings and my own whatever. This isn't to sort of indicate that people have some kind of purity. It's just to say that they're striving in that direction and to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. But there are plenty of very religious, devout people who spend more of their life energy in a way that's outwardly clearly more religious than I do that do take interest-based loans. So I think that there is that part of the community. And it's an interesting social interaction. I mean, I live in a place where I rent, right? Mm -hmm. And they live in a place where they own. And so there's a class difference going on. And yet professionally, we might be peers, but you can tell that there's a different thing going on. And that's like a I try to avoid the conversation. You know, mm. you don't want to tell someone like, oh, you're not being as good a person as right. I am. It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. So, yeah. so like, it's a little awkward, you know? And just to give me a sense, like, what percentage of Muslims in the U.S. would you estimate act and live out their life in the same way you do regarding riba? Yeah, I'd probably say somewhere in the range, you know, there's this, there's, there's some people who can't get a loan anyway. So like hard to put them in that category. Let's say 30% of, you know, over half of Muslims in America are African-American. African-Americans are deeply cut out of the home ownership process anyway. And so like, if you didn't include that half of Muslims and you only included the half that aren't structurally excluded in in that racialized way, I'd say maybe a third of them perhaps are in that boat, something like that. But that's a really like shot in the dark number. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients. Each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. So how has avoiding riba or interest affected your life? Like yeah. buying or renting a home, starting a business, having a car. How has it affected your life trajectory? In ways that I don't claim to fully understand, right? Because I do believe that there is metaphysical causality in the world. Wait, and, what does that mean? And yeah, right. Uh, I'll explain <laughs> that in a minute. Um, like, and so that's to say that while like I didn't do X and Y happened, but ABC may also have happened and mm-hmm. I didn't connect them the same way. Right. So yeah. I'll give you an example. When I was in graduate school, I live in Oakland, but at the time I lived in Berkeley, 2000, like three or four, I think this was, uh, I almost bought a duplex in not far from downtown Berkeley for $260,000. Now, 
that and that would have been outright or you would have gotten a loan of some that sort? That would have been with a loan. I had the whole thing done. The loan was approved. Everything was approved. It was ready to go. The realtor was like, this is ridiculous. Like at the time, it was probably worth half a million. Today, that thing's probably worth $2 million. Like I would be financially, in my view, some people are going to scoff who are richer than me. But in my view, I'd be financially independent. Oh, I'd be yeah. renting out one side and I'd be living free rent. Like I'd be set. Yeah. Uh, but in the 11th hour... I couldn't do it. Like I was faced with this decision of like, do I take this loan to buy this house, which on every metric made sense, right? Like I was going to be paying the same amount in rent or I was going to pay it into this mortgage with the tax write off all the, and you know, housing bets pretty much pay off. That's the way it's worked in the US up until now. Well, especially in Berkeley, California. Exactly. Right. And, and the funniest thing, this is crazy. I said, no, found an apartment, moved in, the neighbor whose place we moved into, they lived upstairs in the house we lived downstairs. He was buying the house. And he was like, wait, you're the person who pulled out of this deal? He's like, why did you pull out? Is there something wrong? Is there something I don't know going on? I was like, nope, nothing wrong. I just won't deal in interest. He's like, what? Wait, what do you mean? And so I had to explain it to him. And he bought the house and he made a fortune on that house. He bought it, he fixed it up a little bit and he flipped it and sold it. Even at that time, he made a fortune. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, it was like this unrealized financial gain that I lost. Mm -hmm. And I say unrealized because it's not like I had money in my pocket yeah. way. So yeah. the thing that I say is complicated is to put it in a little more common language, like I have crazy rent karma. Like I have had the mm. best deals on beautiful rental units for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. At one point, I lived in the studio apartment by Lake Merritt down here in Oakland. Beautiful place, wood mm -hmm. floors, natural light, had a garage. It was a great deal. The price was excellent. I moved out for a year to go do a Fulbright. When I came back, it was still empty. I called up the landlord. He's like, just move in. We'll worry about the details later. That never happened. No. Like no rent increase, none of that. And I was like, things like that have happened yeah. repeatedly in my life. And so I feel like I've benefited from that decision financially mm. in a way that you can't explain through some sort of rational right. theory. So, okay. And so that's at the end where, of the like, day, at the end of the day, do yeah. you regret buying that? house yeah that would now be worth two million dollars not buying the house yeah or not, no, um, sorry not buying the yeah, house. yeah 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 no i don't regret i don't regret yeah. there are moments when i feel that like oh what if you right. know but i don't regret it and i know myself well enough to know that had i bought that i would have forever felt like ah, i got this dirty money what do mm. i do you know and that would have plagued me in a different way so right. no i have no regrets for not buying that house even and i'll even say even if I'm wrong about the reasoning. Even right. if we're all dead and gone, I'll be sitting there and God will be like, you were an idiot. You should have bought that house. Like, <laughs> five. like well, you took all this river stuff too seriously. Come on. Totally, totally. <laughs> and like, even then, my intention was that like, I'm trying to do the right thing here. Right. And one of the first principles in Islam is, is this idea, verily actions are by their intention. And so intention really matters. And so like my intention and a sincere intention, not just like I'm intending and I'm doing this, but my, I sincerely was like, I don't feel like that's the right thing to do, mm -hmm. in which case you shouldn't do it. And so I made that decision and I think that was the right decision. And as I understand it, avoiding riba can also mean you're avoiding insurance because a lot of the insurance industry is basically speculation. Yeah. And so how does that work with things like needing car insurance, which is required by law? Yeah. So so any investment that's speculative is not allowed in Islam. Any investment that pretends to be risk free is not mm -hmm. allowed either. So there are these principles that risk should be shared between mm -hmm. the parties that are involved mm -hmm. and that there should be certainty, not the speculative uncertainty, which mm -hmm. is a space of gambling. Right. So gambling is uh -huh. not allowed in Islam either. So how does that land with insurance? Great question. Now, there are institutional ways of doing insurance that don't require speculative insurance. You, me, and a group of our friends could all put money in a pile together, and if someone's car breaks, then that person gets to pay out. It's like a cooperative model that's doable. Mm -hmm. That's not the dominant way. The dominant right. way are these speculative algorithms and extractive. Let's be real. These insurance companies are deeply extractive, and they, they siphon money up from people, from poor people to wealthier people. Now, you can't drive a car in the U.S. without having a minimal car insurance, I have the basic legal required minimal car insurance. Now, this has implications. Like, one, if, as happened, a tree in the city of Oakland lands on top of my car, that comes out of my pocket if the city won't pay. And that's what happened. The city was like, oh, no, 
we're not paying for that. And so I had to fix it myself. And because the level of insurance you have doesn't cover stuff like that. Exactly. It only covers the liability on you if I bumped into you, right? Mm. And so And so what if you get crashed into and you can't walk anymore? Is that you would hope that's covered by the other guy? One, hope it covered by the other guy, two, my own health insurance, right? Like right. so I also have health insurance through my work. Um and so health insurance is so let's start with car insurance. There's a legal requirement. That's Gene because you have to get it. But but the same scholars who are opposed to interest are like, yeah, but only get the minimum. Now, what that means is that I am really reticent to buy a new car because if I buy a used car and I wrap that thing around a tree, okay, I lost a used car. Hopefully everyone's fine, you know, but if I buy a new car, if I spend $50,000 on a car, I'm walking around with $50,000 that I could destroy in a minute mm -hmm. and no coverage for. Mm -hmm. So it makes me much less likely to buy a nice fancy car or an mm -hmm. expensive car, which if I look at it from on one perspective, I'm like, wow, I'd really love to have a nice new car. But on the other perspective, it kind of humbles me like, no, you're not going to live large like that. And because I live in a place where there are homeless people living two blocks from me and, and it makes me wonder, like, maybe that's the right thing, mm -hmm. you know, that I don't live large when someone else can't even have a home. And on the health insurance side of it, the general, the scholarly consensus is that like you are putting your, your life and family too much at risk if you don't have health insurance. So there are these hierarchical principles mm -hmm. in Islam and life and health are up near the top. Mm -hmm. And so taking health insurance is universally pretty much said, yes, do that. So I had a question about you talked about risk has to be shared in an investment yeah. or yeah. in a financial exercise. So just help me understand how is risk not being shared with a loan, for example? The bank is taking on the risk that you're not ever going to pay back the loan. And you're yeah, taking yeah. on the risk that you couldn't pay it back, and then you have this loan hanging over you. So how is risk not being shared in that instance? Yeah, totally. That's a great question. And I think in some ways the 2008 crisis is a good example of this. A lot of people got loans, they bought a home, but then the home value tanked, and it mm -hmm. went way down. Uh, and, and maybe I'll give an even simpler example. I buy a house for $100,000, but the house price decreases, or for some reason I lose my job and I can't make the payments anymore. So if the house price decreases and, and then I'm considered underwater in the loan, mm -hmm. like I still owe the bank $100,000, even though the value of the house is now $50,000. What's happened there is the bank has said, here's your money, you gotta pay me back all that money plus interest and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. I don't care what happens to the asset. You take all the risk. If house prices go up, you benefit. If house prices go down, you lose. I, as the bank, am not taking on any of that risk. Mm -hmm. So that's how banks work with loans, which leads to the possibility of someone being underwater in their loan. In an environment where risk is shared, if the value goes down, the lender and the borrower both share that mm. loss. So they both right. take the risk. And what that does is it requires the bank to have a better fiduciary responsibility. Like, I'm not going to help you buy a house that I'm not fairly confident is going to improve in value. And so it, it, it forces the bank to take their loans and, and to think about what they're loaning, not just what they're loaning for, not just who they're loaning to more seriously. So, And also banks, they sell their loans off and like they package them off. And, you know, it's not like the original bank that loaned you money is literally holding the bag. Like they, it's crazy. It's, just, it's it? another, it's kind of yeah. just another thing that they buy and sell and your loan ends up being with some other institution within years. And so, and this, this created a, and that's a bit how they of a minimize crisis. their risk. Yeah. And this created a bit of a crisis in the world of Islamic finance because there's a bank, well, I won't name, that gave a bunch of these sort of Muslim loans, halal loans, like allowed loans that were interest free. And then they, packaged them and sold them all off to like Bank of America and HSBC and stuff like that. And people were like, wait, I just have a regular home loan. And it betrayed the, the sort of game that they were playing mm -hmm. that wasn't really the shared risk, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's one of the problems, I think, is that the system we live in works in a certain way. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of normalization of certain ways of doing things. And I think that momentum is hard to push back on. How much money do you make? At my main job at UC Berkeley, I now make, I think I just got a raise, so I think I'm making $116,000, so. 
Yeah. But I'll say that's relatively recent that I make that much. 10 years ago, I made closer to 60 grand or so. So you said at your main job? Yeah. So I'm always doing side work. I mean, I live in the Bay, right? And Mm -hmm. in order to, to live here, it's an expensive place to live. So I'm always doing like I teach another class at another school and make a little money there. It's never consistent, those other income streams. I think I've made as much as 200 grand in a year at one point. And let's say over the last 10 years, I've made as little as 60 grand a year, as much as 200. It's been pretty variable because I have these sort of non-steady sources of income that come and go. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you have debt? Don't have any debt. Thank goodness. Did you ever have debt? Student debt? Personally, yeah. Personally, no. My partner has student loan debt and we paid that off as soon as we could. So, yeah. Dad was a radiologist. So, so that like maybe gives you, that's how my undergrad was paid for. So that's one reason I never did. My parents parents paid for for your school. Yeah. And I grew up in an era where school was a lot cheaper than Mm -hmm. it is now. So that helped too. Yeah. Um, How old are you? Yeah. I'm 47. So. Mm like chokes when that comes out. <laughs> <laughs> so how much is your rent, if you're comfortable saying? Rent all in is about 2400 bucks a month. That's I mean, that's what I'm getting at. I have, yeah, a, yeah. I have a really yeah. good situation in the Bay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> rent karma, right? That's how yeah. that's worked out, yeah. you know? Do you invest in the stock market? So not directly, no, but I am on a pension through the UC and they have a defined contribution plan. I had this really funny interaction with the, they have like folks who administer your your defined contribution plan and they're trying to advise you on the smart way to invest this. And I was like, I just want to sit in cash in an account and I wanted an account that doesn't take interest. They were totally confused. Like I had to explain. They were like, no, I must be misunderstanding you. I was like, no, no, really, you're not. And so I try not to invest in the stock market. There are a whole bunch of like Sharia compliant market investment tools and they have a, a logic that's very sound. I just don't subscribe to it. I feel like the value of Apple computer is speculative. Like Apple releases a new device and their stock market value goes way up or they release earnings reports. And even if their earnings reports are positive, the value goes down because they didn't match the expectation. To me, it's a very speculative investment, not unlike the 1920s. And I don't want to engage in that kind of speculation because I don't think that's right. So I try to avoid that. So you have a retirement fund that's through the University of California system. Yep. And they invest that money in the stock market and in all different kinds of investment vehicles. There was recently some hubbub over them investing in Blackstone, yep. which is a an investment fund um, that has a private real estate investment fund and is effectively the world's largest landlord. Like they own a, a bunch yeah. of places that people live and work. And one of the controversial things that came out of that was that Blackstone was promising a guaranteed 11.25% rate of return, which anyone who knows anything about finance, it's like anytime you have a guaranteed rate of return, What's the catch, like red right? flags, what does that mean? Totally. One estimate said that that would mean that Blackstone would have to raise rents on all the people that they collect rent from by 12% annually. So there, there's another angle to the story okay, that's okay. really important. Okay. There's two pieces. One, they didn't just invest in Blackstone. They bailed out Blackstone. Blackstone's real estate investment piece was failing and UC came in with, was it $3 billion or $4 billion or something like mm-hmm. It was an enormous amount of money the Regents invested to bail out this fund. So firstly, they saved this parasitic real estate agent. Mm-hmm. Secondly, this is happening on the back of a huge strike, the largest ever academic worker strike in the US that was premised around cost of living is too expensive. And then after settling the strike, they invest all this money in Blackstone, which is going to turn around and raise rents on the very employees that went on strike because they couldn't afford it. You can't make this stuff up. This is like a bad movie. Right. So and there's been a lot of outpouring about like, how does this how does this make any sense? Right. So the Blackstone investment, I don't believe it's our pension fund. I believe that's the UC's endowment. That said, 
Okay. I would be surprised if our pension fund was not also invested in Blackstone. Right. And for sure, it's invested in climate risk stuff and military stuff and all these things that I think are horrible. So, And so how my, do you square that? Yeah. That like you're, you know, you do benefit from however the UC right. system t- decides to invest your pension money. Yep. How do you think about that? Round peg in a square hole, I guess. Um, it's funny when I had this realization I used to be like, I'm cool. I don't have to worry. I don't have this big retirement 401k that's in the stock market with all this money that I'm not comfortable with. I'm like, I got a pension and that's state money. And <laughs> How do like, you think that's and, invested? Exactly. Yeah. And suddenly I was like, duh. Like people don't realize that some of the some of the biggest players in the investment world are like the California huge public employee pension system or like university pension systems. Like these these funds have tons of money and where yep. they choose to invest is super powerful. Absolutely. Way, they have way more financial power to shift markets than any individual, right? And so like when I came to that realization, I was like, oh, damn, oh. <laughs> how do I make sense of this? Yeah, yeah. So I went through this process, right? <laughs> and I was like, well, look, right now they take that money and I have no control over it. So I'm not, if you have my money and I have no control over it, I'm not responsible for what you do with it. And That's they, ha- they take your money by, like, you can't choose to not give them? Yeah, okay. the pension plan, you're set. That's a fixed thing. Okay. There's no way around it. At one point, I thought about trying to fight it based on sort of religious grounds, but that would pull them into the weeds of differences in Islamic scholarship. And they'd be like, this is too confusing for us. We're not getting, there are all these other Muslims who don't have a problem. Why are you complaining? Right. And we're getting pretty nuanced here. Right. Most people are not thinking at that level because they're just trying to live their lives. Right. Mm -hmm. Then I was like, well, how do I do this? Do I take this check every month after I retire that I know is derived from their financial investments Mm -hmm. and things I'm not comfortable Mm -hmm. with? So increasingly, there's two routes when you when you retire. You can take a lump sum. Mm-hmm. And if you take that lump sum, you take a huge tax hit. It's mm-hmm. it's rarely makes sense to take a lump sum from a standard traditional financial perspective. Mm-hmm. Or you can take that monthly payout. Increasingly, I think I have to take that lump sum. Because once I have that choice, and I have the choice to not continue to be invested in something that I think is not okay, not okay for the planet, not okay for ethical reasons, not okay for religious reasons, which are all integrated with one another, that like, I can't keep doing that. So I've been starting to think about like, what would I do with that cash at that moment? And I think a lot depends on what's going on at that moment. If, you know, if I have someone in my family that's desperate in need of cash, well, then mm-hmm. there it is, they, it's theirs. Mm-hmm. Part of me thinks that maybe that means I'll just never retire. And, you know, we have a weird retirement model in the U.S. Like you have to create your own mountain of money so that you can live until the day you die, which you don't even know when that's going to be anyway. So it's like a gamble a little bit, as opposed to a more social system where we take care of older people when they retire, Mm -hmm. which is a pensions model a little bit after that, like a collective shared Mm -hmm. system. So part of me thinks, can I build the relationships around me where we have this sort of mutual support? What does that require of me when people around me retire and don't have the amount to live off of? And I think the U.S. is running into this crisis. A lot of retirees who are really their backs against the wall right now. So it's very inefficient from an engineering perspective that everybody creates their own mountain of money to Mm -hmm. live off of until they die. So I'm struggling with that. Part of me thinks that maybe what I would do is, and you're going to laugh, maybe what I would do is I would buy property and rent it out. Well, then here I am, a landlord collecting (laughs) rental income, you know, in a world of homelessness. Like, how do I make sense of that one? I just think you shouldn't be exploitative in the process. You shouldn't be extractive and you should share risk with those who are involved in the process. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like if I'm going to own a property and rent it out, I'm not going to take it, especially if I just own it outright because Mm -hmm. I've got this pension Mm -hmm. windfall. I'm not going to charge market rate rents because I think they're obscene. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to work with someone who's in my community, who I know, who needs a place to live, give them a reasonable rent. Mm -hmm. Does that mean I'm taking a financial hit? Absolutely. But money's not the goal of my life, right? And so I'm okay with that. So I want to do it in a way that I think is ethically sound. That's sticky, right? Because there aren't these absolutes. And I I don't believe that it's absolutely all, all bad or all goods, but it's navigating that in a way that people around me would hopefully hold me accountable if I'm not doing something right is kind of my hope. So, I can't wait for like the, the movie about you that's like fast forward to like when you start a pyramid scheme and you're like, <laughs> but it's... <laughs> <or something. laughs> 
<laughs> it's all good. Yeah, totally, totally. Right, right, totally. Um, well, yeah, because I mean, what if you took that lump sum from your pension and you somehow figured out how much of this is just money I contributed? So like this is literally yeah. like the, ca- the cash yeah. amount that I contributed. And then the rest is all the investment gains I've had. Yeah. And the rest yeah. is what you put toward charity or to like – like causes you believe in, which frankly, I do believe like providing housing for someone at a reasonable rate is great. Yeah. I know maybe it's considered dirty money, but like it is better in your hands 100%. than if you. There's yeah. actually a legal opinion that I think is pretty dominant. So you get a bank account, they give you interest. I always look for a bank that'll give me an account that doesn't charge me interest. But there's an Islamic legal opinion that's like, no, that's wrong. Go to the account that gives you interest because the bank is making interest off it anyway. And so they say, take that interest and give it away in a way that doesn't benefit you. Mm -hmm. That's the best way. Now, I still feel like I would love to help create a system where that's not the way it works. And so rather, and so my hope is by creating more demand for non-interest-based accounts, I mean, at one point I was like, maybe I should start a bank. That's a mess. Don't ever start a bank. It's very complicated. So many laws and rules. But like, how can we create alternative possibilities so people aren't required to Mm -hmm. take part in these systems? It's in my head a lot. I don't have all the answers, but I'm thinking a lot about that. Mm -hmm. Now, your question about should I just take what I put in there and not take the extra that's a perhaps spiritual station that I haven't arrived at yet to think that like from, you know, age 30 until or 30, whatever, until I retire, that someone else has been using my money and I could have used it to make return on an investment in a, in a way that's legitimate. When someone else took that away and they made money off of it, I feel mostly not 100% okay taking that money, but just discontinuing their practices is kind of mm-hmm. the way I would see it. Mm-hmm. So Maybe like just taking what I put in and not taking the returns on any investment in that would be an even higher sort of way or or more pure way of doing it. But I feel like because they have ceded control and I don't have control over it, I'm okay taking the returns they made because those returns are already realized. There's no way I can undo what happened in Mm -hmm. that making of it. Mm -hmm. But then I will take that money and use it in a different way is kind of how I think about Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And you talked about alternative systems like there's another way that we could organize society or engage in financial transactions. What are those? I mean, you also referenced housing co-ops. What are kind of these alternative systems that most Americans don't think about? So I'll give you like first step is the easy one. And it's so amazingly simple. And anyone who has a middle school degree, a middle school education (laughs) could under degree, they give you degrees now. Uh, Anyone with a middle school education could understand this. Okay, Maya, you buy a house, it's $100,000. 10 of us, yourself is one of them, and we get nine other people, we all invest in this house, we each give you $10,000. So every single person put in $10,000, we buy a $100,000 house, I don't know where that $100,000 house is, but <laughs> no, we'll roll exist. with it. No, they exist. They exist, yeah. just not in Berkeley, California. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. And then you live in the house. Now, mm-hmm. because we all own a share, but you live in it, you pay rent. So let's say that rent is $1,000 a month. Every month, every person gets 10% of that rent because mm-hmm. they own 10% of the house. Mm-hmm. But you also get 10% and you use the 10% you get because you're an owner too to slowly buy us out. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you can add an additional on. So it's a rent to own model. Mm -hmm. Over time, you buy us out. Now, let's say five years in, you decide, I can't do this anymore. I got to move or whatever. We sell the house. Everybody still has an ownership share. If housing prices have crashed, Mm -hmm. and now after five years, let's say I only own 8% because you've bought me out some of it, I lose according to the share I own. So I've shared in the risk of that investment to the extent I'm an investor in it. So that model is Mm -hmm. very simple, very transparent. Unfortunately, our benevolent IRS doesn't really understand that model. Like that model where your ownership percentage changes opens up like, well, what's the capital gains on that tiny incremental Mm -hmm. shift that's happened? I can't even loan you money legally in the United States without charging you interest. It's against the law. If I loan you $100,000, one of us has to declare that interest on our tax returns. Mm -hmm. And this is so that really wealthy people don't give their kids interest-free loans. The IRS has a rule that you by law have to charge a certain interest rate. 
And so this whole system actually locks you into it in really uh -huh. twisted ways. Interesting. But there are alternative ways, but there need to be some policy avenues to work that out to make it easier to do. Right. I know that Obama did some law about investments under 250 grand that enabled this. Mm -hmm. And part of this is the tech industry does this shared ownership thing a lot when investors buy an ownership percentage. Yeah. So that that opened up a door for this. Right. It's very doable. It's on the on the perspective of the owners. It's very simple. The government needs to get on board and, and create some policy space to make that happen. So the co-op is, is one route. Mm -hmm. But when you ask that question, what really comes to mind to me is actually something much more fundamental. And this kind of comes from my, my training in political economy, that we treat housing in the United States as a profit-making opportunity. Mm -hmm as opposed to treating housing as a human necessity and a human right. Mm -hmm. And so if we were to decommodify housing, if you bought a home instead of buying an investment, that would change everything. And there are all of these really exciting housing co-ops that are out there like, here you go, Maya, buy this house for $100,000. In 10 years, you can sell it for $100,000, plus whatever inflation, right? So it's the same amount. The idea is that you didn't invest in a home to make a windfall return when you mm -hmm. retire. You bought a home to live in. It has a use value instead of an investment value. And we're going to decommodify it, i.e. it's not going to be a commodity that changes in value over time. Mm -hmm. It's just a thing that you use. And when you're done using it, you get back what you put into it. And so I'm really intrigued and excited by a lot of these attempts to take housing off of the speculative commodity market and no longer treat housing as this investment vehicle that thereby mm -hmm. renders some people homeless and other people really rich mm -hmm. and treat housing as something that, that every human being needs and let's provide pathways to that. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. In the world as it is right now, if I buy a house, it is this commodity that I can then later sell for much more based on housing yeah. prices. So what? How do, how do you actually do the thing that you're talking about? Yeah. So often co-ops organize this this like this like Northern California land trust and okay. and they buy a bunch of homes and then they sell those to tenants and they sell those and they, so you'd have they keep to buy it off it of market from a land trust. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. And those laws are still being sorted out. Like how does a nonprofit land trust buy a place at one value and sell it at another? Is this just a subsidy? Is this really nonprofit? So yeah. there's all these things that And how is the land trust bear. ultimately not really the one winning? Yeah, 20 years yeah. down the line. And like, and I think it's because it's locked in that they don't sell it at a market rate ever. Okay. Like this is wrapped up in their model, right? So that their goal is to remove housing from markets and then they own it and keep it in this non-market space. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a tax, right? The tax is the first time you buy it, you have to deal with this market transaction. But after that, it's never a market commodity again. 
And I think that's a really intriguing value. Imagine mm-hmm. if we had half the housing in Oakland was all non-market commodities and that the value of the home was was locked in, obviously adjusted for inflation, but locked in, that would suddenly make housing and the ability to buy a home or uh, something that other everyone could have access to in a way or many more people anyway. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about privacy, personal privacy on the one hand and financial transparency on the other? She asked me this question while I'm on a podcast. It's going to be blasted (laughs) all over the internet. I'm a pretty private person. I'm pretty outgoing. If I talk to you one-on-one, I'll tell you anything, right? Mm -hmm. But in this abstract way, if whoever's listening to this now, I I may not know you. I may never know you. I may never see you. And so, like, I can't have a conversation with you if you don't understand something. It's one way. You're coming to know me. I'm not coming to know you. That Mm -hmm. just all feels really weird to me. Where like people feel like they know you because they listen to the podcast, but it's like, no, I don't know you, the listener. At all. (laughs) Yeah, 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 totally. And they feel like your friend and I'm like, great, can I borrow 50 bucks? Like, you know, (laughs) like, because if you're my friend and so, you know, it's weird, this digital relationship thing we got going is weird. But at the same time, I feel like too many of my let's say particularly non-Muslim students and colleagues, they don't really know me as like, oh, there's that Muslim guy doing this. And partly I think it's because I came into my professional life post-September 11th, 2001, where, you know, like tricky understanding of Muslims. And if I can't have a conversation with you about it, I don't want your baloney put Mm -hmm. on me. Mm -hmm. And so I don't like put that out there as the Mm -hmm. first thing. I am Mm -hmm. very Muslim. Everything I do is informed by that. But it's something that I kind of keep to myself. Mm -hmm. Here I am on blast about Mm -hmm. it, right? So why are you here? One, there's this non-trivial number of people who are in this situation who don't want to engage in... In a situation where they don't want to engage in extractive investment practices. And so they're locked out of buying a home and they're locked out of buying land. And so they're locked out of of accumulating wealth in the United States. Right. And so they remain deeply marginalized and vulnerable in that way to economic downturns and rents going up and all those things. So that's part of it. Like, I feel like there's a justice issue here. And secondly, how do I hope for change if if I'm not willing to talk about it? I guess that's what it is. How do I hope that this will ever change? How do I hope that we will seek alternative options? And I find it really interesting that my own religious spiritual convictions are coming to the fore in a public way in a moment where a lot of people recognize that we have some problems. Like we have some economic problems that a significant number of people are, are structurally excluded from participating in society in the same way, right? And I think that there are options and they're not new options. They're old options. People just don't know of them. Mm -hmm. And those options don't enable wealthy people to continue to accumulate wealth at obscene rates. Mm -hmm. So yeah, really powerful, wealthy people are not interested in these. I had a conversation Mm -hmm. with a Muslim who works in finance and I was telling him about this model. And he's like, why would I do that? He's like, why would I take on risk and lose the return on investment? I was like, out of a sense of principle, because it's the right thing to do. But people don't invest on principle. People invest on return on investment. And so, like, how do we make it less profitable to extract wealth from people? All of these things are in my head, and I think this is where I'm like, okay, it's not your choice to talk about this. You you need to talk about this, because if you hide it, you're part of the problem, Mm -hmm. so. Do you personally involve yourself in these money pools, like with friends or people in your community of kind of a a personal or a communal type of insurance? Not in a formal way, not in a formal way, definitely in informal ways. I will backstop people's sort of moves in a way. I'm trying to, I've been trying to save up. I would love to own a farm one day. Mm -hmm. So Muslims in America who are avoiding riba, is this setting them up for financial failure? or at least financial strife in this world we live in? Depends on your your relationship to metaphysical causality, right? Okay. <laughs> Going back to your so, amazing rental karma. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like, yes, on paper, absolutely it does. And that may play out in reality. I, I'm a no illusion that you make sacrifices, you should expect to bear the burden of that sacrifice, right? Like that's how that goes. You know, but there's this other interesting principle in Islam. Your risk, your provision is set when you're born. 
If you're not meant to be wealthy, you're never going to be wealthy. You're going to have holes in your pockets, no matter how much money you make. If you're meant to be wealthy, if you become a janitor, you're still going to be wealthy. And there's different understandings of what that means. You're never going to feel a need. You're always going to have all mm. more than you need, that sort of thing. But you can't cheat your way out of the system from an Islamic mm. spiritual perspective. Your risk is your risk. And even if you are smarter and game, and people, people deceive themselves. They think they're being smarter and gaming the system. No, they're not. Their provisions are provisioned. And they're going to have, you know, you get seven more flat tires than I do, and you have to pay for that and that sort of thing. Or your time gets sucked away over here. So there's a way in which you have to go out and work for your risk. It doesn't come to you without working. That's another principle. But as long as I'm out there working and trying to live on, Honestly, I'm going to get what I'm going to get and I can't mm. cheat my way into more. And I really believe that firmly. Mm. And that is very liberating because it enables me to do the things that I think are right and not feel like, oh, no, you have to not do that thing that you love or that thing that you think is important mm -hmm. in order to do this other thing. So like there is a kind of liberating approach when I take that belief really seriously. Hmm. Yeah. So do you have kids? I do. I have two and a third one coming in three months. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Congrats. Exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Super excited. Okay. So given the realities of how much college costs, which is different than when you went to school, <laughs> yep. how are you planning to help pay or not pay for your kids' yeah. college should yeah. they yeah. want to go to college? You're talking to a university professor, right? So at a school like, that doesn't do any I don't any believe in higher matching. education. Yeah, totally. Absolutely not. With not. That. Nope. <laughs> but, but it's actually really complicated. Like, I don't think that's the path for everybody. Sure, sure. And but if they wanted to, like, if they were like, I want to go to Harvard. It is my dream. I got in. Yeah. Help well, that's easy, for it. actually. Let's if they want to go to Harvard, that's really easy because Harvard's a wash in money and has, it's really easy to go to Harvard. Yeah. Okay. Say like they want to go to X yeah. school, but it's expensive. UC Berkeley. They're going to have to get loans. Yep. I'm going to try to make sure that they don't have to get loans if that's the case, whether that means that means working and paying out of pocket. I'm going to try to do that. And there's something that like, I feel like we've, we don't always embrace in America that there are physical limits. Like if you can't afford it, guess what, Maya? You can't have it. Like there's a way we need to understand that. Now there are pathways. They could go to community college for two years and then transfer to Berkeley. And if they really want it, they better work hard and try to get scholarships. And then I'm going to try to support them in it. And we're going to come up with a plan to make this happen. I'm committed to supporting my children in that way. But I also recognize there are limits. If the cost of Berkeley is $100,000 a year, you ain't ever going to Berkeley. Like that's not, I mean, what if they, they get a scholarship out of the UC yeah. endowment, yeah. which got money from ha. Blackstone? To, to, oh, <laughs> you, you, that's dirty, right? I feel like that I would still be totally fine with that. I yeah. mean, I'm not fine with the structure that led to it, but at least that money's being used in this way. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I would also actually really push on those. There's a, there's a couple things there. I would push on them to be like, you have an obligation yeah. because you're taking this money that comes from this. You also need to work to change that system that you're a part of and a system that you're benefiting from that is simultaneously hurting other people. That should feel dirty. Right. And so I think I think about the same way in terms of like someone who's undocumented, like you have access to funding if you're documented that undocumented people don't have. That's an unjust system that like my classmates can't get the same scholarship I can get. That's not fair. Mm -hmm. And so it is our obligation to be working to change that system if we're going to take part mm -hmm. in it and benefit from it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> my kids are going to have a lot of weight on their shoulders. <laughs> but I mean, that weight comes from privilege. That's right. what that is. Yeah. It's like you have all these privileges. You better do something, you know, so. What do you indulge in financially? I can I can see my best friend laughing right now. He's like, "Oh, is he going to be real on this or no?" Um, <laughs> I think uh, I I love backpacking. I love spending time in the backcountry. So I'll I put money into good quality gear. You know, I'm kind of a buy it once and never buy it again person. Mm -hmm. So like, if I'm good going stuff. to. Yeah. And, and it, I've learned that, you know, you know, you buy a sleeping bag, it craps out or it's not warm enough. You buy another one. So I'm like, no, no, I'm just going to buy the right bag that I keep the rest of my life. Yeah. I also really take care of my things. Like, you know, I have an expensive sleeping bag. That thing hangs from the ceiling in my bedroom because that's the best way to take care of it. So like, I really take care of the things that I buy, but I buy it once and I don't, and I try to be done with it. How much did the sleeping bag cost? 500 bucks. 
Okay, let me hold on. Let me be yeah. really honest. I have two bags. Okay. I have a really cold weather bag made by Feathered Friends, and I have a, a summer bag made by Western Mountaineering, ba based out of San Jose. So yeah, both excellent brands, like made in in really responsible ways, and they charge the price that it costs to do that and to pay their yeah. employees. So yeah. Thank you so much for being here. This was really fun. Super. I'm really grateful and I've enjoyed the process. I hope that it added a little color to the world of finance. So definitely. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Other People's Pockets. If you like this show, please tell a friend and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Word of mouth and reviews really help us out. Other People's Pockets is written and hosted by me, Maya Lau. It's produced by me along with Joy Sanford and Dan Gallucci. Production help from Angela Vang. Our executive producers are me along with Jane Marie and Dan Gallucci. A special thanks to Feathered Friends. Other People's Pockets is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Little Everywhere. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. And you can sign up for Pushkin newsletters at pushkin.fm. Find me on Twitter at Maya Lau or on Instagram and TikTok at It's Maya Money. And one more thing, we would love to hear directly from you. Tell us whose personal finances do you want to know the truth about and why? It could be anyone from a celebrity to a mini celebrity to your neighbor down the street whose house and lifestyle just have you thinking, how much money does this person actually make? leave us a voicemail at 323-540-4255. That's 323-540-4255. Or record a voice memo and send it to otherpeoplespockets at gmail.com. 